0: Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. You can find episode show notes, past episode archives, and listener discussions at our website, thenexttrack.com. And in between
1: episodes, follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. For this episode, we're very happy to welcome Michael Connolly, author of Crime Novels, the Harry Bosch series which is also on TV, and he's a podcaster, and he's written one nonfiction book, and you've done lots of stuff. Michael, <laughs> thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me on. Obviously, we wanted you here to talk about music, because this is a music podcast, but I think I've been reading your books for more than 20 years. Wow. It's, it's one of the series that's just like, that inhabits my life. And, and you know how it is with people who read a lot of crime fiction. You've got this sort of rhythm through the year when the new book comes out from the half dozen authors you follow. Particularly at this time where things are so strange, it's always reassuring to have that normalcy of new books from authors who are familiar. What are you doing right now that you're locked in in Los Angeles? Well, I mean, it's weird
2: because um, before the TV show, which started about six years ago, my life was like it is now like with with lockdown because i worked at home and for like 25 years i did what i'm doing now so i'm kind of forced here as we all are because of the uh pandemic but uh you know i'm i'm trying to follow my routines of writing in the morning and uh editing in the afternoon that kind of thing um and so I've been very. I'm very lucky. So I, it's not a big disruption in my life. It's kind of re, a return to what my life was like until um, about six years ago.
1: Yeah, bo- both Doug and I have worked from home for well, me for 25 years, Doug for about 20 years. So it's like as we were saying before we started recording, what day is it? You know, for me, when I get up, it's today. It, it usually doesn't matter what day it is for the work I do. And, and I've been talking to a lot of people who have never worked from home lately, and a lot of people like us who are used to working from home, and the difference is really stark. I mean, people who don't work from home, I can imagine it's hard to adjust to. But when you're used to it, I, you could never go work in an office again, could you?
2: No, I don't think so. Um, I, I kind of do, in a way, a part-time. I, have an, I actually have an office at the studio where they make the Bosch TV show. Um, but I'm always, I'm the first one to say, Hey, do you need an office? I don't really need one. I don't spend a lot of time there, but, um, when I go in and sit in the writing room with all the writers in the show, there's often lunch breaks and so forth where people retreat to their offices. And I, I retreat to this office that has a desk and a chair. I think I've hung a few uh, schedules on the wall, but it's like, it's, I couldn't write there. It doesn't, doesn't have comfort of uh, what I've set up in my, my house.
0: How are you? Uh, how are you dealing with? Do you have any deadlines, or have they been obliterated? Uh, no, I actually have deadlines
2: as of now. You never know because uh, things may change. I have a book coming out at the end of May, and as of now, it's still coming out. Um, we'll see how things happen and whether because uh, a lot, lots of the bookstores are closed, so a lot of points of uh, sale, sale are not there. So. I think it's almost a week-by-week decision-making process by my publisher. So I have that book already finished. It's actually probably being printed as we speak here. And then I have uh, a deadline, and it's not a rushing-up-on-me type deadline, but sometime this summer I have to turn in a book that was scheduled for the fall. So um, I'm keeping my schedule. I don't know what's going to happen in the the commercial side of things where, uh, you know, when the— Uh, books are put out and so forth yeah you're on a book a year schedule right i usually am but this year i happen to do two because um every about every four or five years it ends up being two books in one year and this is
1: one of those years publishers love those years don't they uh they haven't complained about it with me so far I know some other authors of crime fiction whose publishers have tried to press them to do two books a year because, you know, they could sell twice as many books.
2: Um, Yeah, I mean, if you're in that that level, it's nice. I've never really been pressured to do anything except write at the pace that I'm at. And, you know, it's been at least one book a year for… Since 1992, so... Um, and in
1: May, you would normally be going out on a tour, a publicity tour, and you'd be in the States, and you'd be in many countries around the world, and obviously, that's that's, that's someone put the kibosh on that, didn't they?
2: Yeah, I actually was going to come to England, and uh, as of now, that's canceled, unless some kind of miracle cure happens, and...
0: I don't think I'd want to count on that. How do you promote a book, then, uh, under these circumstances?
2: um we're doing it right now <laughs>
0: <laughs> well oh, yeah, yeah.
2: Okay, okay. a lot of uh, online and social media and stuff like that and, and see what happens i mean that's always a big part of um uh promotion anyway uh it's interesting the sixth season of the tv show comes out next week
1: april 17th on amazon
2: yeah and they're shifting um a lot of their promotion to all online and stuff. I mean, it's weird. I've had, I've, I go out about once a week to try to get groceries and stuff. And Los Angeles is dead. You can go down Sunset Boulevard. Normally it's a crawl and there's like no cars and there's billboards up for the new ep- season of Bosch. And it's like, no one's, no one's seeing these billboards, you know, Spooky. Yeah, point, alternate uh, or increase their presence online.
1: If you use Amazon Prime Video, you can't miss it. It's up yeah. in a banner at the top of the app and the top of the website. Yeah,
2: I mean, that's it helps. It's a streaming show with a
1: platform where everyone's trying to buy breathing masks and everything else. <laughs> People who bought these N95 masks also watched. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have to say that very often TV series that are taken from crime fiction series kind of don't fit, but Bosch is one of the rare ones that really works. I think Titus Welliver is just wonderful as Bosch. I think he really fits the character. I think the pacing of the series is good. And I know you're executive producer and you're involved in the writing. How much did you mold the series in what you wanted? How much flexibility, how much leeway did you have? Well, I hesitate to take credit,
2: but you know, I think what I did was I surrounded myself with people that were dedicated to the books and weren't. Uh, I've had experience in Hollywood where people um, want to take your books and then show you what they can do with them. I This time around, I surrounded myself with people who uh, maybe even revered the books. Uh, my the my main producer um, named his son Harry after reading the books and this was before I even knew him. And so, like, I'm there. I'm kind of like the uh, wise old man who wrote the books, and I I can be consulted and so forth, but it's a lot of really talented people that are dedicated to the books. Um, The one thing that I brag about is that I suggested Titus Welver. I mean, here I was. I'm a a book writer who's self-sheltering at home for 25 years, and when it came to casting, um, I, I had seen him in some stuff where he played a guy who had PTSD and was carrying some... Something inside. And uh, and I threw his name into the ring of discussion and he ended up getting it and uh, getting the the role. And so I feel kind of like that was a big contribution for me.
1: I think the first time I really noticed him was in Deadwood. Right. He was in Deadwood. Um, he had a great role there, and then he was in Lost a bit. Yeah. But by the by that time in Lost, I had no idea what was going on anyway, so it was yeah. really hard to follow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's he's you know uh, twenty five years as a character
2: actor, and he got this this is the first lead he's ever had, so he's cherished it. He does whatever he's asked. He he's so involved with the crew and other actors, and 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 trying to get this to be the best show it can be. So, not only. I had no idea that any of that would happen. I just thought this guy could project what I what we need Harry Bosch to project. And then we got all this other stuff as almost as an extra that's, that's been fantastic.
1: So music, you're really into music. And uh, just a, a brief quote from the Black Echo, the only things he spent money on were food, booze, and jazz. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, you know, it's interesting that jazz and... Uh, especially The Black Echo, the first book, was, it was kind of a construct. I grew up listening to rock and roll and blues, but when I was creating the character of Harry Bosch, um, I wanted him to have a musical identity, and jazz seemed to fit with the loner detective. It was also um, my dad's music, and at the time, my dad was had terminal cancer, and so it was a little bit of a nod to him and some of the stuff I heard... Uh, you know, when I was growing up, he was more of a like Frank Sinatra type side of the jazz world. But um but there was other some there was some good stuff like culture and so forth. I heard when I was growing up. And so, you know, I was a reporter. I was a newspaper reporter when I wrote, wrote the first three books. So I know how to ask questions. So I went to people with far more knowledge than me and said, what would this guy who knows his way around a jazz club, what would he be listening to? And I started making a collection. And as I say, it was a construct or it was a a conceit to a character, not my music, but it became my music because I, the next part of that research is to listen and pick and and choose. And, uh, and so over the evolution of my writing career and the Harry Bosch arc, um, I've I've, you know, added jazz as a big part of my uh, my listening life.
1: That's really interesting. I, I would have just assumed that you were just the jazz guy who went to all the jazz clubs, and when you were writing the novels, you needed music, and you picked jazz. But it's interesting that there was this sort of um, symbiotic relationship between a choice you made that influenced you now in your music.
2: Yeah, and um, I did need jazz. I... I when I was writing the first few books, I lived in a um, an apartment that was near a freeway. There was a freeway all the time, kind of like a dull background that you could live with. But when it came to writing, it was really intrusive. So I actually moved into like a walk-in closet in uh, an apartment. Our apartment, and I wanted to play mu- uh, music, but I was I grew up like Eric Clown- Um, was the guy I listened to most in my life, probably the guy I've seen most in concert and so forth. Um, I didn't want to have that. I didn't want to have lyrics. I didn't want to have anything that would intrude into what I was writing. So I was doing this research. I was going to people who really knew jazz, taking their advice, getting those records or those CDs back then and, um, and listening to it while I was writing. And so often Most often, or almost every time, you see a piece of music mentioned in a book that I've written. I was listening to that music when I wrote that page, Um, and that's normally how it works.
1: And I'll have a link in the show notes to a page on your website called The Music in the Novels. There's two lists. There's a list by artist, and then there's a list per book of the the artists and songs and albums that show up. Do, Do you see the music as... It's not a soundtrack in the books, but is is the music a sort of a character that comes in and out through the stories?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it does help define a character, and I don't do it with every, every character I've written about. Um, sometimes I have to wait for that character to, tell, to kind of tell me what their music is. And so it, it's not in every book. It's been in the Bosch books from the beginning. It was early in the... Um, The Mickey Holler books, the Lincoln Lawyer books, and I've kind of shied away from it there. Um, You know, because the other characters I write about are not as uh, singular or solo as Bosch is. He he really is like, you know, I I remember uh, from Taxi Driver where the guy refers to himself as uh, God's Lonely Man on Earth, and that, that phrase is always been in the back of my head when i when i write about harry Bosch, and and so there's the music content to that kind of feeling and to me it's jazz i mean jazz is like cigarette smoke and it just it just <laughs> feels it, it it fits with this character and 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 so that's where i've i've really really explored it more than um with other
1: characters, but so I, I can empathize with what you said. You grew up with rock and roll, and that was your music. And then trying to get into jazz, there's so many places to go. There's so much to learn and so much to listen to. I grew up in New York, and I went to rock concerts at Madison Square Garden, the Palladium, etc. And I kick myself now for not knowing anyone back then who was into jazz who would have taken me to the village vanguard to hear bill evans in 1980 for example when i think of all the music i missed and over the years it's really daunting sometimes to try and get the references and the history because there is this sort of lineage of jazz performers
2: yeah i mean i i feel the same way i've I've missed a lot of that i remember in college um i tried to be like hip and 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 get into jazz and i saw you know like Herbie Hancock and Return mm-hmm. to Forever and things like that, Weather Report. Um, they would travel on, on college campuses and stuff. But I, it, was, it was hard to embrace. Yeah. And so when I, you know, whatever it was, 20 years, 15 years later, i writing about Harry Bosch. And I did, I cut through everything. And I very specifically said, he's going to like saxophone. And so that, that's what I, you know, most of the people he listens to um, uh, are, are sax players. And, um, you know, I had a key thing happen. Um, I, you know, my wife was aware of what I was doing because I had to make a deal with her. I had my day job as a newspaper reporter. And, but she knew ever since she knew me that my ultimate goal was to write novels, crime novels in particular. So when I thought I was ready to start doing this, I made a deal with her where I would write four nights a week after work and one of the weekend days. And, uh, you know, she made that deal and was very supportive. It was at least five years before I held a, a finished copy of a book in my hand. So she she was really part of uh, a big support network, but she knew what I was doing and I was playing jazz. And, and you know, she was like me. We grew up going to rock concerts. And uh, she was hearing this strange music coming out of the walk-in closet, so she knew what I was doing. And uh, one day she came in with this Newsweek story um, and said, "Here's here's a guy you might want to check out." And it was about it was the headline was something along the lines of the return of Frank Morgan, and it was about this L.A. based saxophone player who had been in prison for 25 years, and his second album was coming out. Um, 25 years or 30 years or something like that after his first album. His whole life as a musician had been interrupted. As a recording musician, I should say. He always played, but it had been interrupted um, by uh, drugs and jail and crime and so forth. And so he's a really intriguing character. And it turned out, when the day she gave me that story, he was playing in L.A. that night at a club called the Catalina. So we went and saw him play and and that became the bedrock musician and sound of harry Bosch. it was Mm -hmm. early on in the writing of black echo and uh it was just really um influential and there's a song that uh, uh morgan plays on a couple of his albums um plays it in different ways it's a very short song called lullaby and it's it's very sad but it also has a strength to it and that became in my mind, Harry Bosch's anthem, and so for, I don't do too much I mean, uh, anymore if I do it on occasion, but back then in the 90s, I played it every day. It was like raising the flag <laughs> for a day of writing. I would start my day of writing by listening to Lullaby by Frank Morgan, and that, you know, um, kind of penetrated my psyche, and, and then it went into Harry Bosch.
0: I, I, I'm really spoiled here, because While I've seen um, a couple of seasons of the show, I've only just this week, because you're on the show, started reading The Black Echo, and I'm kind of spoiled because you've just told me a a great way to experience the rest of the book, so that's a a wonderful uh, piece of uh, key information. Yeah, we did get um, Lullaby
2: into the first uh, episode of the show as well. and so that week i I went back I, I think I took one day off and then I went back and watched Frank Morgan again and um over the years I, I'd go see him many times, and eventually I got to know him and we did we did a couple of events together and so forth uh, before he passed away so that was um uh that's a that musical experience that i I really cherish
1: and you co-produced a documentary about him
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he had a a really uh, great story about uh, redemption and not giving up and
1: uh, um, yeah, yeah, so it was worth I thought it was worth a movie, so i uh, yeah. uh, uh, produced it I, I like what you said about the saxophone being the 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 music of the loner in some ways because you hear that in the movies in the thirties right you you hear that sort of slow y saxophone, and it does indicate the same way a piccolo in an orchestra makes you think of fairy is the saxophone makes you think of Sam Spade or someone, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, just you know, just certain um riffs on it can really put you into that kind of noirish um uh, feeling and uh and and that and that works. I mean, it's 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 really interesting that I my stories for the most part are on a page and, and when I write about what a character is listening to, you can't hear it. But if you can describe it, um, I don't want to say correctly, but if you can describe it well, um, it, it still, it, it means something. And, and then in, in today's age of, um, uh, quickly being able to get music on your phones and so forth, uh, I hear from a lot of, Uh, readers who, um, as they read, they start playing the music.
1: Yeah, I mean, remember when we were all 20 years old and the only music you could listen to was what you could afford to buy, and now we're so spoiled. In fact, I'll link to a couple of playlists. Music from Bosch on Amazon Music. Obviously, it's on Amazon because the series is there. And there are a number of playlists I found on Apple Music that just people have made on their own, so I'll link to one there. It's true that since... You've got the same kind of music in the TV series. It's like you've got this whole universe with the words, the images, and the music that fit together. That unlike, you know, other crime fiction novels that don't have TV and don't have that audible soundtrack, there is more of a feeling with the music when reading the books. And so when I read your books, I do put jazz on, not necessarily the jazz you're talking about, but it just sort of feels right for me. And then there's other books I'll put on, classical music, et cetera. But it's true that the character just sounds like a jazz character. I mean, I grew up in New York, and I'm thinking those, you know, three o'clock in the morning, downtown New York, the kind of sound that you'd like to have as, as the soundtrack back in the day before you even had a Walkman.
2: Yeah, and, you know, the... Um you know, New York, um, is a city that never sleeps, but, but, um, Los Angeles goes to sleep. And so yeah. late at night you have deserted streets and you still have neon. And, uh, there's just that this sense of loneliness, um, in Los Angeles late at night. Now it's 24 hours a day because no one's out on the streets, but, um, but that also
1: speaks to to this music as well. So, in the TV series, I, I expected to see you in one of those cantilever houses that Bosch has in the TV series, and it's like I would not even set foot in one of those houses. I mean, earthquakes happen in Los Angeles. Uh, how many of those are there? Is is this just like only? Is this just an occasional thing that you figured would fit good in the story, or are there a lot of these houses? I've never been to LA. Um, yeah, there's
2: there's neighborhoods that have them and. They look scary, um, but normally the the caissons or the piping or whatever you want to call it, the cantilevers, are in, uh, you know, the reason there's mountains through the city is because the mountains haven't eroded yet. And so the mountains are pretty solid granite. And, um, and so these houses are pretty well anchored in there. But there's always exceptions. I remember when we had a um, big earthquake uh, once, one of them, just kind of slid down the hill. Um, See, I'd and, never go in one of those. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the one that we used in the show, um, um, you might recognize it. it. Was also in a movie called Heat, and, um, mm. and one of the producers of Heat is one of the producers of Bosch, and he, he kept his rolodex of all of his. So we he called the guy who owned the house and said, Do "You want to rent it again?" But, um, that is pretty spindly, and when you walk around there, you feel vibrations, and we actually have uh when we film up there, there's a weight issue with cameras and people and so forth and and there's a rule that no more than fourteen people can be in the house at once and so when you so you know you 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 kind of like when I'm there up there filming, I usually don't stay in the house, I usually <laughs> stay on the drive
0: <laughs> yeah
1: it's funny you mentioned heat because i watched that a couple months ago on netflix or amazon it was the director's cut and i saw the house and i thought oh well they've just got the house in a studio with a chroma key screen behind it that's not a real house
2: no they did they use the same you're right they did do the um whatever they called it back then chroma key whatever yeah the green screen Um, um but they they used this house and shot some of it there and then um Build it on a stage. We haven't done that. We've always used the real house.
1: Oh, okay. So yeah. when so when it shots of him in the house, it's not in a studio. Not in a
2: studio. Not it. Not oh, in. Wow. A,
1: on Bosch, it's all. Wow. All okay. Yeah. That that seems like a lot of. Um, I don't know. Uh, you, you'd think, well, I guess in Los Angeles they can do whatever they want because everything's so close. They don't have to bring you – know, they don't have to ship things in from out of state to get all the equipment like you would in The Shining or something. Yeah,
2: it's a difficult um, shoot, though, because it's up on top of a hill. It's like a little narrow street. Yeah. We have to use vans to bring everyone up and down because we, we'll down on the flats. We'll have our uh, base. So it's difficult, and – um we do. We try to bunch it all together because it's somebody's real house, and we don't want. We don't want to say sure. renting it for three months while we do all this production. We usually do all that in a few days. The whole season's worth of shooting in maybe four days, four nights. Yeah.
1: So in that house, Harry Bosch has a Macintosh tube amplifier. Are you an analog guy?
2: No, I don't know anything about that stuff. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, see, here I was thinking, Doug and I were talking about this. Doug said that's what got him into the series. We're not particularly analog guys, but I was thinking, okay, Michael connolly he's the analog guy. He says, got to have vinyl, got to have the high-end kit there.
2: No, I mean, I have v- I'm, I'm disappointed. <laughs> I'm like, like you guys had to talk me through how to set up my um, FaceTime. I'm yeah, just FaceTime, not yeah. a technical guy. I like listening to uh, vinyl, and I have a... But it's in another room. I don't even know what I have. I just know it sounds great. Okay, not an antique. I know. I mean that set that he has on the show. First of all, it doesn't really work.
0: <laughs> oh, good. I can stop being jealous. <laughs> I'm sorry.
2: Uh, uh, You're spoiling things. <laughs> yeah, throwing the dream. But yeah. all kinds of commentary, you know, on social media and people asking about it and you know what year it is and all. I think it's from the '60s. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't um uh, as far as i know it doesn't work and um you know so every now and then we'll show him playing a record but obviously it's not really playing the turntable yeah that's about it
1: oh that's a shame because that is an i for for people who are into stereo equipment that's an iconic amplifier yeah, yeah. The, the same way an old car would you know grab car people yeah yeah so so what do you listen on these days are, are you a platform agnostic listener? I don't even know what that means <laughs> <laughs> you just listen on whatever works yeah
2: no i mean i um uh I lo- I love playing records in um in in my office i'm not in my office right now because of this uh shelter in place my twenty three year old daughter who got laid off from work has come home to shelter with us, and my office is actually a uh a, in a separate apartment within my house. And she has that, so I'm not talking to you from my office. I can't take you in there because she's probably asleep. Um, yeah. To, to show you what I have, um, but off the top of my head, I'm uh, like I'm not a audiophile where I can tell you what I have. I we said Okay. It's just like when I went to people and said, "What would yep. Harry listen to? Um, who were the musicians he would listen to?" I went to an audiophile and said, "Get me a really good setup," and yeah. that's what I have.
1: And you don't even know what it is? No. <laughs> See, we, we do talk to audiophiles in this show. Neither Doug and I are particularly audiophiles. But I find it refreshing that you said, just get me something good, but I don't care what it is. I'm not going to obsess about the cables and the speakers and everything. In some ways, that seems to me healthier than the way some of these people always try to get the next better thing. Um, I think so. I mean, you, you know, you choose what
2: your fascinations are and that. I'm just interested in the end product, how it sounds, and and how convenient it is to uh, to where I'm working.
1: So do you always listen to music, or do you often listen to music when you write?
2: Yeah, I often do.
1: I often listen, it's still the same as it was, uh, whatever it was,
2: 25 to 30 years ago. I don't mm-hmm. like to listen to um, music with lyrics when I'm writing, so yeah. um, I have a I don't have like a massive, massive collection of jazz, but I have a rotation of about 50 albums that I go through. Um, what
0: kind of rock and blues do you like? Because that's where we're at,
2: too. Yeah, um, I don't know. I, I've always liked Almond Brothers and um, uh, uh, Cream. And Cream in the Garage when I was a kid was that Grateful,
1: Grateful Dead or no? Yeah, yeah. All right, another Deadhead. I have to say, though, well,
2: I don't think I qualify as a Deadhead. I've never seen, I never saw them in concert, so. Okay. Um, saw the Rolling Stones a bunch of times, um, clapped in a
1: lot. That's the stuff. Yeah. I never saw the Allman Brothers. I missed that one. Yeah,
2: I grew up in Florida, and uh, went to the University of Florida, and they came every year. Oh, right. Uh, what's the name of that theater up on the Upper West Side of New York? They had a, a stand. Beacon Theater. Yeah, huh? the Beacon. Every year, like three. Right. Yeah. I used to have an apartment in New York um, years ago and I saw them there.
1: Well, I left New York in 1984. I went to France. Now I'm in the UK. So my concert going period is like mid 70s to mid 80s. And I missed all the good stuff after that.
2: One of the, uh, so- someday you guys might want to interview Titus about music because he is very much involved in the music on the show and selects. Um, Usually there's this uh, a, a song, not a jazz song, at the end of every uh, And He's been the one who's chosen those songs, and uh, he's very, very musically oriented guy.
1: Michael, thank you very much for taking time to talk to us. Take advantage of this lockdown to do something you've been wanting to do for a long time, like the violinist we talked to last week who was working on Paganini's Caprices, or something similar.
2: <laughs> All right, I'll work on that.
1: Okay.
2: (laughs) When I can, I'll see what my equipment is, and I'll send you.
1: That'd be interesting too. Great. So, be links in the show notes to all sorts of things: Michael's website, the page listing the music from the books, a few playlists. Obviously, the Amazon series, which comes out on April seventeenth. This is the sixth season, and there's going to be one more season, and that's it. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Michael Connolly, thank you very much for joining us, and have a great day in lockdown. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks a lot
2: for having me.
0: At the end of every show, we like to pick an album that we're going to listen
1: to and tell you why. It's our next tracks. Kirk, what have you got? For my next track, I figured I had to pick some jazz. And, you know, we've talked about Miles Davis recently. That's sort of an easy pick. I've talked about Bill Evans, Brad Meldow, people like that who I really know. But what I did yesterday is I went onto Apple Music and I just scouted out some jazz playlists. And I found a playlist called Jazz. With a lot of Z's. So it's like jazz to put you to sleep. And I was thinking, oh no, this is going to be smooth jazz stuff, but it's not. It's some really good stuff. And I started listening to it and I came across an album called Angel Song by Kenny Wheeler, Lee Konitz, Dave Holland, and Bill Frizzle. Now, I'd never heard of Kenny Wheeler. The other three musicians are extremely well known. This came out in 1997. The ECM website says, this represents the uniting of four exceptional improvisers with unique artistic. Identities, The unique drummerless quartet performs a program of all Kenny Wheeler compositions and has the undefinable hallmarks of a classic. This is a fascinating record. It's very laid back. It's very mellow. And yes, I understand why they put it in the jazz playlist. But I listened to this once last night and I started listening to it a bit today. This is going to be the thing that I listen to now uh, for the rest of the week. I'm going to, as I've said several times, when I discover a new record that I like, I just want to play it over half a dozen times to get to know it. Kenny Wheeler plays trumpet and flugelhorn. I've always liked the word flugelhorn. And Lee Kohn, it's alto sax, Dave Holland, double bass, Bill Frizzle, electric guitar, very well known. So it's called Angel Song. It's Kenny Wheeler and three other musicians on ECM. Doug, have you got something jazzy?
0: You know, when our guest Michael Connolly mentioned the Allman Brothers and the uh, the Beacon Theater concerts, uh, there are several recordings of those are available, and I have a couple of them, and they're really, really good, and they feature uh, a guitarist by the name of Derek Trucks. Perhaps you've heard of him. He was a uh, guitar wunderkind as a teenager and uh, eventually became a full-time member of the Allman Brothers, but he also has his own band called the Derek Trucks Band, and the album that I like... By them is called Already Free. It's uh, their sixth album. It came out in 2009. I first heard a song from this album. It must have been Radio Paradise or some stream like that because it came out of nowhere. Uh, the song I heard was uh, Get What You Deserve, which actually I thought was Hound Dog Taylor and the House Rockers. And if you know what I'm talking about, it's got this nice kind of uh, gritty, distorted slide guitar sound. It's, it's, and the song itself is, is, is like a nice uh, boogie swing if you will. But um I got the record and I was really surprised by it. It opens with Dylan's Down in the Flood. And so that was a bonus. Uh it's a really great record and the band is really good. In fact, reading about it, I've discovered that uh, this is the album that most of most of his fans thought was really the point that the band came together. So it, it's an exceptionally good band record. But of course, Derek Trucks himself is a is a phenomenal guitar player. Uh, It's a great record. Give it a listen. Listen to those Beacon Theater albums, too, from the Allman Brothers. They're quite good, too. But this album by the Derek Trucks Band is called Already Free, and it's my next track. This was episode number 177 of the next track. Thank you for listening. We recorded our interview with Michael Connolly on Wednesday, April 8th, 2020. Your comments on any episode are welcome. You can start or join a conversation on this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit TheNextTrack.com. You can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, so your support is what keeps us going. You can visit Patreon.com slash TheNextTrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.